Lebanon. The country claims to have the oldest continuously inhabited city in the world. But Lebanon is a country in turmoil. Its economy is one of the world's 10 worst. Bread prices increase several times a month, and the price of fuel goes up twice a day. Yet God has a heart for Lebanon. Coming up, we'll explore firsthand what the Lord is doing today in Lebanon. You'll be encouraged. So join us now for The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. And by the way, once our program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? The Life and Messiah is focused on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics. We encourage you to check out their content, which you'll find inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, let's take a look at current events for the week. As the political unrest in Israel continues, concerns are rising that this could encourage Israel's neighbors to attack. What are the specific concerns, and what can Israel do to help reduce the threat, if anything? Well, as Israel continues to struggle politically, her enemies do seem to be growing bolder, being encouraged and supported by Iran. In Lebanon, Hezbollah has been pushing against Israel at the border, They deliberately set up tents on the Israeli side of the border, though just outside Israel's security fence. Uh, They fired an anti-tank missile toward an Alawite town that straddles the border. And then last week, a Hezbollah soldier threw a Molotov cocktail across the border at Israelis. Uh, To keep the situation from escalating, Israel's response to all these provocations was muted. But Hezbollah is seeing those muted responses as a sign of weakness rather than restraint. Hmm. Hezbollah's leader recently said the entire Middle East won't rest until the, quote, cancerous gland that is Israel is removed. He also boasted that Israel will cease to exist if war erupts. Hamas is also trying to make inroads in the West Bank. Israel foiled a plot by a nine-person Hamas cell to capture a soldier and carry out other shooting and bombing attacks there. The number of incidents like this is climbing, and unless Israel can bring about some level of deterrence, It's only a matter of time until something catastrophic happens that results in open conflict. Israel's leaders need to put aside their political posturing and ideally form a unity government to focus on the threat. Sadly, right now, I don't see that happening, but it needs to. They also need to speak clearly and forcefully both to Hezbollah, Hamas, and the rest of the world to let everyone know they will respond with overwhelming force to any threat. Israel's defense minister has been trying to do this, On a visit to the border with Lebanon, he said Israel won't hesitate to unleash its power. But such statements need to be repeated often and by diplomats and politicians, as well as by those in the military. Now, hopefully, Israel's continuing to update its plans on how best to respond to any attack by Hezbollah or Hamas or Iran or Syria or even Yemen, because all of them could be involved in the next conflict. But Israel also needs to be reviewing its plans to defend its infrastructure from attack. Hezbollah, Iran, and the Houthis in Yemen all possess sophisticated missiles and drones that are very accurate. Power plants, water desalination and pumping facilities, the nuclear reactor at Damona, offshore drilling platforms, military bases and airfields, major industrial facilities and, and ports. Those are the kind of targets Israel's enemies will likely try to hit using swarms of missiles and drones in any future attack. 
Israel needs to make sure these enemies know they're ready to respond with overwhelming force and that they're also prepared for any surprise attack. Now, doing all of that's the best way to avoid a war in the first place. Well, Charlie, no one doubts the capacity for escalation and conflict, but this claim that Israel will be wiped out, I mean, given their military strength, their clear uh, preponderance of military hardware, do these people actually believe that claim? Uh, Sadly, I think they do, and it's because uh, news reports are coming out of Israel that pilots are refusing to fly sorties against uh, their enemies because of the current conflict within the government. If you hear enough of that as an enemy, you begin to believe it, and I think they're thinking... Well, maybe this is the right time to attack. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land of the Book. Story number two, the United States and Iran are working toward a deal to swap prisoners. Is this a one-time event, or could it be part of a, a larger agreement between the two countries? You know, not a lot is being said publicly, but it's hard to imagine this being just a one-time event, you know, totally unrelated to anything else. It sounds like Iran will release five U.S. Iranian citizens being held there in exchange for the release of an unknown number of Iranian prisoners being held by the U.S., along with the release of up to six or seven billion dollars of frozen Iranian assets held by South Korea. Hmm. Uh, The deal's complex because they're trying to get the funds from South Korea to Iran without touching the U.S. financial system along the way, which could make the funds subject to other sanctions against Iran. The money would be sent to Qatar and held in restricted accounts to be used They said only for humanitarian items like medicine and food. Mm -hmm. However, what's less clear is if that would then free up other funds currently being used for those purposes that Iran could then use to finance terror. It's also unclear if the deal is intended as a way to build toward a larger deal addressing Iran's nuclear program. Apparently, Iran has informally slowed enrichment of their weapons-grade uranium and reduced by a small amount their stockpile of uranium already enriched to 60%. Now, to put it in perspective, under the original nuclear agreement, they were only to have about 660 pounds of uranium enriched to not quite 4% purity. Right now, they have 10,500 pounds of enriched uranium stockpiled. Wow. And over 250 pounds of that are enriched to 60% purity. They already have enough enriched material stockpiled to make two nuclear weapons. Several intelligence reports out of Europe recently suggest Iran is getting close to testing a nuclear weapon. Uh, They continue to expand the number of centrifuges in operation, and they've been caught trying to acquire equipment and knowledge from different European countries to speed up the development of their nuclear program. Uh, The U.S. wants a nuclear deal with Iran, but there's little indication Iran can be trusted, and that has Israel and others in the Middle East very concerned about these talks. Story number three, archaeologists recently excavated a building in Jerusalem destroyed by the Babylonians when the city fell in 586 B.C. What did the excavation reveal about the city's fall to Babylon? What did they actually see, Charlie? Well, this is a fascinating story on a couple levels. Apparently, the excavated building once belonged to an elite family in Jerusalem. It was a large structure on the western slopes of the original city of David, just south of today's old city walls. The building itself was a two-story structure, and it measured uh, 33 feet by 56 feet, making it one of the largest structures uncovered from that period. Now, using very high-tech processes involving spectrometry and archaeomagnetic analysis, they were able to determine the building had deliberately been set on fire. Hmm. By measuring the magnetic signatures of pottery shards and broken floor panels, they were able to determine that the fire was started on the top floor in multiple locations of the building. 
of the spread of the fire and rapid collapse of the second story into the first suggests the destroyers intended to completely raise the structure. Analysis of the debris suggests the temperature in some parts of the fire reached 1,300 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a hot fire. Now, let me move it, though, from the archaeological to the biblical. This discovery illuminates 2 Kings 25, verses 8 and 9. In that passage, uh, we're told, On the seventh day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which, by the way, is August 14, 586 B.C., that's 2,608 years ago this past Monday. Hmm. Nebuzaradan, commander of the Imperial Guard and official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. Now that's the quote from the passage. This building is one of the buildings burned by the army of Babylon, and the Bible says it was deliberate arson, which is just what the archaeologists discovered. Scientists at the Weizmann Institute have found a biomarker that may change the way patients with lung cancer are treated. How might this new discovery impact individuals struggling with this disease? In tests on mice, these scientists were able to block the switch that drives abnormal cell growth, allowing tumors to shrink permanently. Now, if it proves out in further studies, the treatment has the potential to bring about full remission for about 40% of those with a gene mutation found in non-smoking lung cancer patients. Now, a critical part of the study was the discovery of the biomarker, a sort of early warning system that indicates which patients are likely to respond positively to a, a cancer drug called Erbitux. The next step in the process will be clinical trials to establish the treatment's effectiveness on patients with lung cancer who possess that specific biomarker. Now, while most lung cancer is caused by smoking, the second biggest cause is the mutation of specific genes. Right now, several different types of inhibitor drugs are administered to those with that problem, but by the time Erbitux is used, it's usually ineffective because by then the cancer has developed resistance to the medication. Now, these researchers believe pre-selecting lung cancer patients who can be treated with Erbitux from the very beginning, based on the mutation profile they discovered, will be more effective. Designer treatment that can identify and apply a specific drug to individuals with lung cancer, well, that's what this new approach will be. That's the kind of discovery from Amazing Israel that could very well make a positive impact in the war against lung cancer. Well, God has a heart for Lebanon, very clearly, and coming up, we'll explore firsthand what the Lord is doing today in Lebanon. You're listening to The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. More to come. Lebanon, it has the highest population of refugees per capita of any nation in the world. With over two million war refugees living in Lebanon, nearly 90% are struggling to survive, living in extreme poverty. Lebanon is a country in turmoil. Its economy is one of the world's 10 worst. Bread prices increase several times a week, and the cost of fuel goes up twice a day. Yet God has a heart for Lebanon. Up next, we'll explore what the Lord is doing today in Lebanon. Actually, I think you're going to be encouraged. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. And you know, God has a heart not just for Lebanon, but for the entire globe. Here's a tip on reaching out to your Muslim neighbor or coworker. It is so easy to make mistakes when trying to reach out to your Muslim friend. And I've certainly probably made most of them. 
including the idea that I should draw sharp distinctions between the Quran and the Bible. Well, there are distinctions, but to go at it as an argument has never been profitable for me. Stefano Fear with Call of Hope. How do we resolve this tension between the Quran and Scripture? Well, John, I don't know how you feel if somebody attacks you and attacks your faith. Mm-hmm. We don't feel good, right? Not good, not good. So you are so right. Uh, the Quran is not right, and it is very different to the Bible. You're right. But do I have to tell this a Muslim in the first conversation? <laughs> in the first conversation, I tell him what Jesus means to me. Mm. Later on, we can talk about differences. They might ask you, and if they ask you about the differences, then tell them what you think. Tell them that Muhammad is not your prophet. Tell them that the Quran is not the word of God, but only if you are asked. First of all, you tell them what Jesus is for you. And then you'll see. That's practical advice from Stefano Fair, who's with Call of Hope U.S. Thank you. Tom Adama is the co-founder of Heart for Lebanon. He also specializes in organizational health, leadership development, and relational funding. Tom is a ministry builder, a developer, a strategic thinker, and strategist. We're honored to have you on the land in the book, Tom. Hey, it's good to be with you today. Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity, and you have a great ministry as well. Well, let me ask, if you're the co-founder of Heart for Lebanon, who's your partner? <laughs> well, we started in Heart for Lebanon in 2006, but really it goes back to 2001. I was working for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, went to Lebanon to teach biblical servant leadership to pastors from Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and Lebanon. And that conference was coordinated by a man by the name of Camille Milky. He was president of Mediterranean Bible College, uh, also a leader in MIADI, which is a correlation of colleges throughout the Middle East that work together. They, they cooperate one with another is what I'm trying to say. And um, we became best friends 2006. Uh, he was at our house here in North Carolina, and um, we turned on the TV, and Hezbollah had borrowed two soldiers off the Israeli line, and the war began, uh, which devastated southern Lebanon. And Camille looked at me, and I looked at him, and I said, so how long am I going to teach biblical servant leadership, and how long are you going to run a wonderful Bible college before we do something where the people of southern Lebanon can see and hear about Jesus Christ? And Camille said, well, if I'm going to do that, I need somebody to help me. Will you help me? And I said, absolutely, I'll help you. So I did all the strategy work behind. We got legal on both sides of the pond. Um, never forget the first, in the first week, Camille called me and he said, I need $50,000. And I said, 50000 for what? And when do you need it? And he said, well, I need 50000 for sweaters and coats. And I needed it yesterday because I already bought all the stuff. Oh and that's how we started on Lebanon. <laughs> And you know what? Not much has changed since, even though I've tried to change it. <laughs> but through all of that, we developed God laid on our heart for Lebanon. And we went from southern Lebanon to working with Iraqi refugees to working now with Syrian refugees. And I think we'll be working in Lebanon because of the problems in the country till Jesus comes. I suppose. Hey, what do Americans not understand about Lebanon? What storyline do you think escapes us? <laughs> I, I think what they don't understand is this is a land where Jesus walked. This is a land where Paul walked. This is a land where the apostles walked and where they ministered. I can take you within 20 minutes 
of our center in southern Lebanon where Peter and Paul reconciled. I can take it to the woman at the well. I can take it to about 15 different biblical, historic, if I can word it that way, sites in the country of Lebanon. The other thing that people don't understand is the historic moment we're living in at the moment. And that's my Muslim friends who have come to faith in Jesus Christ telling me this. These are Muslim background believers who say this is an historic moment, and people don't understand what a moment in history this is. Hmm. I mean, you're living in Lebanon, which is the most democratic country in the Islamic world. You're free to proselytize. If you go with me to Starbucks and Sistine Circle, downtown Beirut, tomorrow morning, you'll see more Bibles open at that Starbucks than you will at your Starbucks at the corner of your street. Hmm. No kidding. I call it the evangelical Starbucks of the Middle East, and I've been in every country in the Middle East, including Iran. Not saying that to boast, I'm just saying I've seen the gospel open in Lebanon like no other country in that part of the world. And people are responding to it. I had a lady not too long ago, I was walking in Zakli, and uh, was out for my morning walk. I usually like to take three, five mile walk a day and uh, just on my way to Dunkin' Donuts, to be honest with you, to have a cup of morning coffee about 6.30 in the morning, this lady comes up to me and she says, are you an American? And I go, yes, ma'am. I'm from the East Coast in America. She said, so what's the answer to our problems? Wow. I go, excuse me? What's the answer <laughs> to our problems? Her and her husband, who spoke perfect English, and I talked for about an hour over Dunkin' Donut coffee in the country of Lebanon. People don't understand how open it is to reach that part of the world which I think the country of Lebanon is key to the Middle East. Because remember, Iran wants to build an ark over Israel, and the only land they haven't succeeded in doing that yet is the country of Lebanon. So Lebanon's key. And if we can build, and we can, I'm praying God will give us 10 years, a new generation of value-based, that's biblically-based leaders that have character and strength and values and built on God's word because they love Jesus Christ, they can influence a corrupt society for good. We're talking with Tom Adama, who's co-founder of Heart for Lebanon. Well, you hinted earlier at a need for clothing, and it sounded like warm clothing. Uh, What else is this ministry of yours about? What do you do? Well, what do we do? We build environments so that people can see and hear about Jesus Christ, and then grow in their faith with Jesus Christ. By environments, I'm talking about humanitarian aid. It might be supplement food, it might be pillows, mattresses, uh, rugs, tarps, two-by-fours, so they can build a tent, uh, home repairs, whatever it takes. Listen, you have to meet their human need before they'll listen to what you really care about. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to understand that humanitarian aid, while very important, it's like putting Band-Aid on a, on a bullet wound. It's not going to save the patient. Or put it in another way, if Jesus thought that humanitarian aid was the answer, he would have sent a chef. But he didn't. He sent a Savior. Yes. Because it's the gospel that makes the difference. So we want to draw people into a conversation so that we can talk about our Heavenly Father and then invite them to Bible studies. That's number one we do. Number two is we have Hope Educational Program. That's helping overcome children in poverty through education. These are all Syrian children who have no opportunity, zero opportunity to get an education in Lebanon. And it's a full-fledged academic full year, a math, Arabic, English, science, Bible, chapel, 
value-based education. Hmm. Uh, along with that, there's an afternoon program. The afternoon program is for those who have are 11 to 13 who are living in extreme poverty and never been to school. Can you imagine 11-year-old child yeah. coming to our school mm-hmm. in the afternoon wow. and not knowing how to climb a step? Wow. That was Sam. Sam couldn't climb a step with the other 23 students. We had to teach him how to climb a step. He's climbing the steps to this day, and he just, I was just there a couple of weeks ago. He graduated. He graduated not only with English, not only knowing how to read and write Arabic, not only knowing how to do math, but knowing Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Wow. Now, how do we know that is because he's loving other people. Remember, in Islam, there's no word or action for love. And so when they see love and they come to Christ, the behavioral changes, they start loving other children. And Sam, on this first day of class, I mean, he was mean, he was nasty, he was disrespectful. 100% turnaround today. I mean, it's unbelievable what God did in his life. The mm. other thing that's exciting to me about these afternoon students is they're singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. Now, you don't think that's a big deal in the American culture, but in Muslim, you're not allowed to sing. But all of a sudden, out of a natural response, because Jesus came into their life, they start automatically singing. It's beautiful when you see these kids. So we build these different environments so that people can see and hear about Jesus Christ. Tell me a story, Tom, about a moment that made you want to cry. This one is is a story of Peter, who uses American name to protect him a little bit. We had the kids stand up in class and, okay, where'd you come from? What's your background? What's your vision? What's your dream? What's your Mm -hmm. hope for tomorrow? And the teacher asked Peter this, and Peter stood up very proud, very straight, and said, well, I came from Syria. Our house was bombed in Aleppo. We were affected a second time by the earthquake that happened in February, and um, we just fled to Lebanon. And I'm so thankful to be in school. And what do you want to be, Peter, when you grow up? I want to be a terrorist when I grow up. I want to defend my family's name from the infidels who killed my father, my mother, my grandfather, my grandmother, and my two siblings. Hmm. That's my goal. If you come with me, and I hope you and your listeners do, and meet Peter, and you can, today you'll see Peter wanting to be a peacemaker He's not sure if that's a police officer or what that looks like or a pastor, but he just wants to go back to up by Aleppo to a small little village just east of Aleppo and share the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow. That's Heart for Lebanon in a nutshell. Well, how can we pray for your ministry, Tom, Heart for Lebanon? The biggest way to pray for Heart for Lebanon is by praying for that God will give us wisdom. That's the biggest need we have. We need more prayer partners. We're working in a dark Hezbollah, um, just terrible area. It's very dark. And the opportunities are wide open, as I described. And we have to be wise about how we go about our ministry. There is persecution taking place. There is pushback to the gospel taking place. But how do we operate through that? God has given us much grace. And we just pray that that will continue and that he'll give us much favor in the days that lie before us. So the biggest need we have, honestly— is prayer. Well, you mentioned the safety issue, and, uh, you know, that comes to my mind. You know, certainly there is pushback, and you've gone ahead and, and uh, mentioned Hezbollah even. Uh, how do you cope in that kind of an environment? You cope in that environment by raising what I call the faith flag high, 
But you don't stand on top of that flag yelling and screaming and doing things that just make them mad. Hmm. In other words, you don't go on the street corner passing out tracks. You're bold about your faith. You're not hiding it. You can go to Starbucks and sit there with your Bible open and read it and have a discussion. But you don't want to stand up and say, hey, everybody here, listen to what I just read in John 3.16. I mean, that's not (laughs) going to go over. You're going to get persecuted for that. You just need to be wise about how you go about your daily life. And when you do, God keeps opening up doors, and he rewards that. Hezbollah hasn't harmed anybody on our team. They're all indigenous except for me, all faith followers of Jesus Christ. But they do tell people by their actions, we're here, we're watching you, we know what you're doing, don't cross the line. Now, that's where wisdom comes in. Where's the line? Nobody knows. But I can tell you this. The Middle East, especially Lebanon, is wide open to the gospel, as I've been talking about. But I do feel, to be totally honest with you, that the window is not closing, but the shades are coming down. I can feel it. Every time I go, I feel the shades down another inch or two than it was last time I was there. God is coming back, and I think it's sooner than we realize. This, my friend, is our Esther moment for our generation, and we better not blow it. Well, that's quite a statement. And Tom, thank you for your leadership, for giving us insights into what God is doing in Lebanon. And there's a link to your ministry, Heart for Lebanon, at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Thank you for your time, for your Heart for Lebanon. It's a real encouragement. Thank you, my friend, for the privilege. Really appreciate it. God bless you and your ministry. Well, Dr. Charlie Dyer returns to the studio. You know what's coming next. Questions from you, answers from the Word. Don't miss that next segment here on The Land and the Book. Welcome back to segment three of The Land and the Book. We're excited. We are Charlie Dyer, host of the program, John Geiger, his co-host, and you, you're part of that we. That's because this segment is all about your questions and thoughts as you read through Scripture and maybe something you're wondering about. Well, what do you do with that wonderment? What do you do with that question? You email it to us just because, well, we love answering your questions. Uh, and here's how you connect, The Land and the Book at Moody. But once this program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land and the Book listeners, If you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button there. All right, let's start with Lisa's question today. It's a series of questions about the Ark of the Covenant. Philistine men were afflicted with tumors when they possessed the Ark of the Covenant, we're told in 1 Samuel 5. And men of Beth Shemesh died because they looked into the Ark, we're told later. We hear about Uzzah dying when he steadied the Ark in 2 Samuel 6. And of course, the problem in Uzzah's case was that the Ark was to be moved only by the Kohathites and only by carrying it on poles. But originally, the Kohathites 
were told not only that they could not touch the ark, but also that they could not even look at it or they would die. Was there some point where the priests no longer wrapped up the ark? If so, why didn't everyone who saw it die? Lots of questions here, Charlie. What's your thought? Well, I need to start with one clarification with the question. Uh, in the Numbers 4, which she cites there, it doesn't actually say the Kohathites weren't allowed to even look at the holy objects. It, what it says in that passage is they must not go in and look at the holy things, even for a moment, or they will die. And that is, they were barred from going inside the tabernacle to the holy place or the holy of holies, where the different pieces of furniture were residing. Uh, only the priests were allowed there. I believe this is specifically connected with the presence of God's Shekinah glory inside the Holy of Holies. Now, God did give specific instructions for carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and that's why those who touched it when it was put on a cart were killed. And the men of Beit Shemesh who, who looked inside the Ark, well, they were priests, since Beit Shemesh had been given to the descendants of Aaron as one of their cities. So in, in other words, as priests, they were given instructions on how to handle the Ark of the Covenant, and yet they chose to peek inside it when they had the opportunity. So they weren't killed for taking the ark back from the Philistines or even for looking at it because they had to take charge of it, but they went beyond what God had permitted when they looked inside, and that's why they were killed. Quick follow-up, is there any significance to it being called both the ark of God, Elohim, and the ark of the Lord, Yahweh? I don't see any difference between those two phrases, ark of God and ark of the Lord. Uh, it's also called, by the way, the ark of testimony, the ark of the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. You know, there's different phrases, but I say they're all the same because in, in 1 Samuel 6, one of the passages there, both Ark of the Lord and Ark of God are used interchangeably within the same context. So as a result, I think they're just simply synonyms describing the same item. Ginger asks, is the Spirit of God mentioned in the Old Testament the same as the Holy Spirit that came on the people at Pentecost? Well, in the Old Testament, Spirit of God, I think, is equivalent to the Holy Spirit, which is the third person of the Trinity. In Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God's connected with the beginning of God's creation of the world. In Exodus 31 and 35, it, uh, the Spirit of God's what provided divine enablement for those who constructed the ark and its furnishings. Uh, God's Spirit also came in a temporary way on prophets and on kings, like King Saul. And then uh, the one key difference between the Old and New Testament, though, is in the Old Testament, the Spirit's indwelling was not necessarily permanent. The Spirit departed from King Saul because of his disobedience. And in fact, in Psalm 51, David prayed and asked God not to take the Spirit from him following his sin with Bathsheba. Now, in the New Testament, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit becomes permanent and universal in the sense that all believers are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer answering your questions, as he faithfully does every week in this third segment. Let's go to Jim's question. He says, I just heard somebody talk about the different genres of Scripture and how they affect hermeneutics. He said the first 11 chapters of Genesis should be read as a literary genre called mytho-history. His conclusion is that Adam and Eve were part of the species Homo heidelbergensis and were given a soul by God, rather than being special creations from the dust of the earth. Can you comment on this, especially about the genre of Genesis 1 through 11? Yeah, well, mytho-history is really just a reworking of a theory that's been around for a while, and it tries to explain away the historicity of Genesis 1 to 11 by describing it as myth or fable or, or some other form that doesn't require us to take it literally. Now, the main reason for adopting the approach is to try to resolve the tension between the Bible and science as it comes to evolution. However, that theory, as it's presented, might sound good, but it has a number of problems. It doesn't explain why the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2 presents a fact-based account 
of a six-day creation with a seventh day of rest. You know, in Genesis, it simply says, uh, and there was evening and there was morning, day one. You know, it's, it ties the events to a 24-hour period of time. Uh, it doesn't explain why the Sabbath was so intimately connected to the seventh day. In Exodus 20, God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But he says you're to do that because in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So why connect the command regarding the Sabbath if the events on which it's founded have no basis in reality? I go to the New Testament in Mark 10. uh, Jesus alludes to the creation account. He says, and God made them male and female and uses that as the basis for his command regarding divorce. In Luke 17, Jesus compared the end times to the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be. Well, that's also a passage in that so-called mytho-history section. But Jesus does that in a way that shows he's affirming the historicity of Noah. Uh, Finally, I, I go to Romans 5. Paul bases his theological argument on a comparison between historical Adam and the historical Jesus. Well, if Adam isn't a literal historical individual created uh, the way he's described in Genesis, then Paul's entire argument seems baseless. He was certainly affirming the reality of Adam there. Uh, I could go on, but uh, these are examples, and they illustrate to me uh, the biblical writers saw the events of Genesis 1 to 11 as historical and factual, both in the Old and New Testament. So in the end, you have to finally decide Do you accept or reject what God has said in his word? But trying to reinterpret it as so-called mytho-history, it just doesn't align with the rest of the Bible and what it says about those chapters. Here's Jeff's question. I don't understand when the events of Numbers 25 took place, where 24,000 died. Was it with Moses at the first visit to the promised land or just before they crossed over to possess the land? Yeah, and uh, I'm not quite sure there, because Moses never actually visited the promised land. Uh, In fact, because of the incident where he struck the rock rather than speaking to it, God barred him from bringing Israel into the land. That was in Numbers 20. So now, in terms of the events in Numbers 25, they took place at the end of the 40-year wandering. Israel was camped on the plains of Moab, just across the Jordan River from Jericho. In fact, the events from Balaam, uh, just prior to Numbers 25, took place there And uh, in fact, it's called there the Plains of Moab in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. Uh, In fact, it's called the Shittim, the acacia trees in Numbers 25, but they're all the same place. Uh, That place is the Plains of Moab, and it's really the spot where Israel was camped just before they crossed over the Jordan River. So the events in Numbers 25 took place just before they crossed over into the Promised Land, and it's right at the end of their time in the wilderness. Diana is a Moody alum, and she's still studying the Word, which is great. She enjoys listening to The Land and the Book on Saturdays, and she takes us to 2 Samuel 21, verses 9 through 14 that she's been studying. And she says, can you give me some insights on on this passage, particularly verse 14? Yeah, well, in 1 Samuel 31, uh, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, it says, gathered the bodies of Saul and his sons from the walls of Bashan and carried them to Jabesh-Gilead, where they burned them and they buried them. Now, Likely they did that to prevent any further desecration of those corpses. Jumping now to 2 Samuel 21, 14, David takes the kindness of the people of Jabesh Gilead one step further and brings the remains of Saul and Jonathan, and likely the other family members, from Jabesh back to Saul's family tomb in Gibeah, treating Saul with dignity by allowing him to rest with his fathers. In the earlier verses of 2 Samuel 21, It's likely David allowed Saul's other descendants to be executed by the people of Gideon for an atrocity Saul's family had committed against the city. 
Following the execution, the people of Gibeon desecrated the bodies by allowing them to be exposed to the elements, and that's why the noble actions there of Ritzpah are singled out in the story. It so moved David that he gathered both Saul's bones and those of these men who had been executed to make sure they were given a proper burial in their family tomb, uh, showing David's concern for the respect. Brian says, my question involves David, Solomon, and Abraham. We almost have these Old Testament saints on a pedestal. However, each of these guys had more than one wife at some point in time. We would be aghast nowadays if a Christian man came into our church with two wives on his arm. Was bigamy somehow different in Old Testament days? Maybe some of it was more of a formality than anything else. Give me your opinion here, please. Well, I start with the reality. God's ideal at creation was one man and one woman for life in Genesis 2. However, in the progress of Revelation, God apparently allowed some less-than-ideal actions early in human history, but then later specifically prohibited those actions. For example, Abraham married his half-sister Sarah, though later such relationships were prohibited in the Mosaic Law. Jesus described something similar when he was challenged by the Pharisees concerning divorce. We know that in the Mosaic Law, kings weren't permitted to multiply wives, and in fact, Solomon's disregard is what ultimately caused all his problems. So I think the way we need to view this is to see individuals as godly but flawed men, which they were. They, they weren't perfect, and the Bible unflinchingly reports not only their spiritual triumphs, but also their failings. And in that sense, they're good examples for us to look at and make sure we emulate the good parts and not the ones that uh, were problematic. Hope you've enjoyed today's question and answer segment, and yours is welcome too at the land and the book at moody.edu. Could be it's your favorite segment coming up next, Charlie's Devotional, right here. and say that we save the best for last. And I think that's sometimes true here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. We're headed to the book of Micah. And uh, Charlie, with that, I'll let you get on with it. Now, last week, we focused on famous left-handers of the Bible for International Left-Handers Day. But today, I want to focus on a group that's even more rare than left-handers. I'm referring to the 1% of the population who are ambidextrous, who are equally adept at using both their right and left hands. They're the ones who can step up to the plate in baseball and bat from either side, depending on the pitcher. Uh, They can dribble and shoot equally well with both hands in basketball. Uh, It might surprise you to learn that our journey into ambidextrosity begins in a small town named Morasheth Gath, the hometown of the prophet Micah. Morasheth Gath is located about 23 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the low foothills called the Shephelah. It straddles a natural valley that leads from the Mediterranean coast toward Hebron in the hill country of Judah. Now, the site isn't very big, and if it hadn't been the hometown of Micah the prophet, I don't think it would have been very significant either. But Micah became, in many ways, the mirror image of Isaiah. The two prophets lived at exactly the same time, and parts of the message God gave them to deliver are almost identical. Think of this well-known passage. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Now, who wrote that? Well, if you're saying Isaiah, you're right. It's Isaiah 2, verses 3 and 4. But if you said Micah, you're also right. It's Micah chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah and Micah delivered surprisingly similar messages during the same period of time, 
but they're not completely alike. Isaiah's book is definitely longer, and Isaiah lived in Jerusalem while Micah lived here in the Shvelah. Isaiah predicted Jerusalem would be delivered from the Assyrians while Micah predicted his hometown would be destroyed. I want to focus on one of Micah's other messages today, so grab your water bottle and follow me up the steep hill to the site of ancient Moresheth Gath. (laughs) Well, we made it to the top. Uh, Just over there to our east is the flat-topped hill on which the city of Mereshah stood. Sadly, Micah also predicted the fall of that city to the Assyrians. In fact, in Micah chapter 1, the prophet predicted the destruction of nine different cities and towns in this immediate area. Imagine having to predict the death or captivity of family, friends, and neighbors. Now, as you stand here gazing out over the landscape, let me ask you a very disturbing question. What brought about such destruction and devastation? Why did Micah's hometown, as well as the surrounding communities, find themselves in the crosshairs of the Assyrian army? Well, some might point to the foolish decisions made by Judah's national leaders. Even good King Hezekiah made some poor choices. But he had followed wicked King Ahaz, whose 16-year reign was a time of political, moral, and spiritual disaster. Second Kings 16 says Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Ahaz also voluntarily surrendered Judah's independence to Assyria, declaring that he was Assyria's servant and vassal. He even replaced Solomon's altar of burnt offering with a copy of a pagan altar he saw in Damascus. It's true that leaders do influence the trajectory of countries they rule, but they don't do it alone. They're aided and abetted by those who choose to follow them. 2 Kings 16.16 adds a pointed reminder that Judah's descent into spiritual idolatry was helped by the temple priests themselves. And Uriah the priest did, just as King Ahaz had ordered. But you can't read very far into Isaiah or Micah until you realize it wasn't just the leadership who were responsible for God's judgment. The people themselves were just as guilty. Micah rebukes them for coveting fields and then seizing them and for going after the weak and defenseless, the foreigners, the women, the children. He accuses those in leadership of hating good and loving evil as they metaphorically tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. In an ironic twist of fate, the Assyrians literally left a record showing their capture of Lachish. In the relief from the palace walls at Nineveh, they picture soldiers flaying alive some of the people of Judah. Their punishment was a literal fulfillment of what they had metaphorically done to those they had oppressed. But wait, I can hear you saying right about now, what does any of this have to do about being ambidextrous? I thought you were going to talk about people who were ambidextrous, not the judgment brought on Judah for sin. Well, you raised a good point. So now it's time for Micah to respond. We know that in a normal population, about 90% are right-handed and about 10% are left-handed and somewhere around 1% are ambidextrous. But Micah begs to differ. In fact, Micah says that in one sense, all of us are ambidextrous. Micah 7.3, concerning evil, both hands do it well. When it comes to doing what's wrong in God's eyes, evidently we're as good at sinning with our left hand as we are with our right. But before someone can disagree, Micah gives a series of examples. The rulers demand gifts. The judges accept bribes. Expensive gifts. Envelopes stuffed with cash quietly slipped into a pocket. Insider trading. 
The number of ways those with power and influence can use it to increase their wealth is staggering. But Micah isn't done. It's not just the powerful and wealthy. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with her who lies in your embrace, be careful of your words. A neighbor, a friend, even a spouse. In Micah's day, the moral fabric of society had declined to the point where no one could be trusted. So everyone can be ambidextrous when it comes to doing evil. And when society turns from God, it will become corrupt from the highest levels of government all the way down to the neighbor next door or even those of your own family. But if that's true, what are we supposed to do? Fold up our tent, move to a cabin in the wilderness, build a bunker and store up beef jerky and bullets? Micah has a better idea, and I want to end by sharing his practical response to the ambidextrous evil in his day. It's found in Micah 3.8. After describing all the evil in society, Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Micah focused on his relationship to the Lord. God's enabling Holy Spirit gave him divine power, and he chose to live his life based on God's justice and might. Everyone else might be heading in the wrong direction, but Micah was committed to following a different path, the path God set out in his word. Micah then chose to back up his actions with his words. He continued to proclaim the truth of God's word, even when those around him refused to listen. Micah decided the nation's revival needed to start somewhere, and it was going to start with him. But can one person really make a difference? After all, Micah was out in the Shephelah, the boonies, far away from the capital and the seat of power. What difference can one ordinary person make when a nation seems to be running from God? Well, the answer is quite a bit when God's on your side. Micah doesn't provide the answer, but the prophet Jeremiah does. A hundred years after Micah, Jeremiah was put on trial for preaching that God was about to judge Judah for its sin. Just when it looked like Jeremiah was about to be found guilty and condemned to death, some of the elders of the land stepped forward and said to the crowd, Micah of Moresh hath prophesied in the days of Hezekiah king of Judah. He told all the people of Judah, and then they quote Micah 3.12 before continuing. Did Hezekiah king of Judah or anyone else in Judah put him to death? Did not Hezekiah fear the Lord and seek his favor? And did not the Lord relent so that he did not bring the disaster he pronounced against them? Micah's one-man crusade was used by God to change the trajectory of the entire nation for almost a century. One person, empowered by God's Spirit, following God's commands, and proclaiming God's Word can make a difference. And my friend, that one person today might just be you. Hmm, I love that thought. Thank you, Charlie. You can hear today's devotional and the entire program again at our website, The Land and the Book. Dot O-R-G. Time always goes too quickly. Hey, send us an email if you'd like to be a real encouragement. You can connect at the land and the book at moody.edu. Thanks to the management at this station for giving airtime to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. <laughs>